The sermon this morning is on prayer. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 22. We're continuing our study uh, in the Son of Man coming to seek and to save the lost. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, out of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 23, and we're going to consider the most important prayer ever, ever prayed. Uh, thinking about prayer this week, I went back and did some study on prayers. I looked up a whole bunch of prayers this week. I've read more prayers this week than I've, than I've prayed in a long, long time, and I'm not going to share all of them with you this morning, uh, but just kind of kind of get the juices flowing a little bit. Uh, I'm going to mention a couple of prayers, <clears throat> excuse me, which are pretty f- famous prayers. They're prayers you've probably heard of before. You've probably heard the, of the serenity prayer. Uh, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, uh, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, so on and so forth. You've maybe prayed that prayer, read that prayer in a devotional book at some point in your life. Uh, perhaps you are familiar with the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, uh, let me show love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Uh, and it goes on and, and asks for those types of uh, things of God. That's probably a prayer with which you're familiar. I went back and I looked at Martin Luther's prayer the, the night before he stood uh, in the Diet of Worms and defended his uh, theology of Reformation, defended his theology of salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ Jesus alone. And this was his prayer, and it's in the Old English, which is interesting because he prayed in German. But anyway, it says uh, this, Do thou, my Lord God, stand up against all the world's wisdom and reason. Oh, do it. Thou must do it. Stand by me, thou true uh, eternal God. Just some great prayers as I was thinking about uh, Jesus's prayer, and I and I thought about what was my, you know, what was like the Tom Rick's greatest prayer ever prayed, and I and I thought long and hard about it, and I I can uh, point to it pretty easily. It was in a very beautiful spring night uh, in April of, of 1980 as I uh, approached uh, Cindy uh, in a very romantic place, and the prayer I uttered right before that encounter was, "God, please, 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 let her say yes." That's the most uh, famous prayer. That's mine that's going to be printed somewhere. And she did, and it's been 27 great years. Uh, Hopefully you've had deeper prayers than that. When we talk about prayer, talk about fellowship with God, you talk about communion with God, you talk about conversation with God, I think it's appropriate that we look at the Lord Jesus and we look at probably the darkest hour of his life, Uh, probably the scariest moment that he faced. was not at the cross, but it was actually in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus wrestled with the final decision to go, to trust his Father and to pay for your sins and for my sins. So let's look at that prayer this morning out of Luke chapter 22 and what we can discern from it and what we can apply to our own lives. Luke writing chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. Hear the word of God. Speaking about Jesus, Luke writes, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel 
from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him be glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, talk about prayer this morning, it is more than appropriate that we stop and pray before that conversation. Lord Jesus, we are weak in our prayer lives, every one of us. Even those of us who pray faithfully could pray more. And those of us that pray less, uh, well, we just, we just know it, it, it's not where it ought to be. Father, we are consumed with so much busyness in our lives. The, the thought of withdrawing customarily and spending time in prayer is a challenge for us. Father, part of the challenge is because we live by sight and not by faith more often than we would care to admit. And so, Father, as one who needs the lesson most on prayer, I ask that you would come and that you would open our hearts and minds to what you want us to know this morning. Lord Jesus, we don't need more knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but we do need knowledge that would grow into wisdom and that would result in bearing fruit in our lives for your kingdom. So, Father, I pray that that you would teach us with uh, that goal in mind, that we would be equipped, that we would be empowered to follow Jesus more faithfully. Father, I confess my sin to you. I pray that you wouldn't let me stand in the way of what you want your people to know this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just uh, to go down a side road for just a second, let me, let me talk about Luke's uh, recounting of this event in Jesus' life because it's a little bit different uh, than the other Gospels. Uh, first of all, Luke condenses the information in the story. If you go back and you read Matthew, uh, you look at Luke, and in fact, if you spend some time uh, studying those Gospels, you'll see that there's a little bit of an expanded version uh, of this story. And Luke uh, brings the information to the event, and he condenses it down because I believe what Luke wants to emphasize is Jesus' experience and not so much the disciples' failure. Uh, you'll know if you look at the other Gospels that Jesus goes back a couple times in those stories and, and uh, gets on the disciples for being asleep. And I, and I don't think that's Luke's concern so much, although he does mention it, and we'll cover that. But I think he's more interested in focusing us on what Jesus is doing here. Uh, Luke alone has an interest in the physical condition of Jesus. This is the only gospel that records the, these great drops of blood. And again, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But just to remember, Luke was a doctor. Uh, Luke was a physician, and so he had interest in how the human body worked and how the human body functioned, maybe in a different fashion than the other gospel writers did. And so Luke has, has somewhat of a unique uh, interaction with this particular event in the life of Jesus. But for our purposes this morning, we want to really concentrate on prayer and its impact uh, in this particular situation and how it impacts our lives. And I have five uh, observations as we go through this text. So let's jump in. The first observation I have is I want you to see the normalcy of the moment, the normalcy of the moment. Look at verse 39. It says, when Jesus came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. I want you to see and underline, as was his custom. 
There are literally dozens of mentions in the Gospels of Jesus going off to a solitary place where he prayed. Uh, if you go and you look at Mark chapter 1, the night, uh, he, Mark is talking about the night before Jesus selected his 12 apostles to be with him. And it says that he went and he spent all night praying. And you can read in each and every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, dozens of times where Jesus withdraws to this particular location on several occasions and a variety of other locations. When Jesus faced the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, he had been in the wilderness fasting and praying for 40 days. Jesus' life was a life of prayer. That being said, I think it's important to realize that that the time for us to begin to practice prayer is not in the middle of the storm, but it's before the storm ever arises. As we're going to see in a moment, Jesus is in the darkest hour of his life. That's not a time when you want to say, maybe I should learn to pray. Maybe I should get around to that now. It's, it's maybe too late at that point to develop a prayer life. I'm thankful for a lot of things in my life. One of the things I'm thankful for is that from infancy on, literally, from my earliest memories, my mother taught us to pray and moving around a lot and on the go. And think about when, uh, when Jordan was born, an emergency C-section, and he came out as blue as blue could be, and absolutely was prayer. What's to develop a habit in about two years to develop a lifestyle? Uh, so if you're not used to praying, uh, what you could do is decide that you're going to spend the next six months, every day you're going to set aside t- 10 minutes in your day timer and you're going to get alone, and you're going to pray. It's going to take a while for you to develop this discipline, but for each and every one of us, I want to encourage us to make this the normal part of our life, not the exception, but rather the rule that we are very used to spending time with the Father. It's second nature for us to go before him in prayer. Jesus did as was his custom. But I also want you to see in this passage a second observation, which is this. Prayer seems to always be wedded to care. There's a connection between prayer and care. Look at verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, them being his disciples, the 11 that were left, pray that you may not enter temptation. Jesus is in the most serious personal struggle in his life. And yet he takes a moment to look out for his disciples. I like that about Jesus. I like the fact that he's always walking around with his eyes open. He's always in tune to the circumstances. He knows where he stands, and he knows where other, those who follow him need to stand, and he's looking out for them. He's caring for them. He's nurturing them even in the darkest moments of his life. So he looks at his disciples as he's going to this place where he's about to fall on his face before God and offer the, the most important prayer of his own life. He looks at them, and he says, you guys pray too. Prayer, I believe, makes you aware of other people's needs. You can only pray so much for yourself before you start praying for other people. Uh, when I became the pastor of Green Tree, um, I, I decided that I should probably, you know, pray for other pastors. And I knew the guy that had, that had gone to be the pastor of the church where I just served. So I started with one, uh, and I began praying for him. Well, it wasn't long after that kind of began happening that I would think of another guy. I think of a guy here in Kirkwood, or I think of, of a buddy of mine, uh, you know, over uh, on the East Coast, and I pray for him, and, and pretty soon uh, it started adding up, and I wasn't just praying for one guy, I was praying for three, four, ten, fifteen, and I, this last week I went back and I looked at my list every Sunday morning, I pray for one guy in Maine, four guys in New York, three guys in Virginia, two guys in North Carolina, one guy in South Carolina, four guys in Florida, three guys in Georgia, 14 guys in Tennessee, one in Ohio, two in Indiana, two in Michigan, two in Wisconsin, one in Minnesota, one in Iowa, one in Nebraska, 
one in Kansas, seven in Missouri outside of St. Louis, 19 in St. Louis, one in Mississippi, one in Louisiana, four in Texas, seven in Colorado, five in California, and three in Washington. Let me just say, if you know a pastor in Wyoming that needs prayer, please don't tell me about him. (laughs) I got to get up early on Sunday mornings, not just to go over my notes, but I got to spend extra time praying for all these guys. Jennifer Bennis, I've gotten to know Jennifer Bennis' parents, and I told her for a service I was going to say this. And and Phil, they they come into town occasionally, and I don't know, about a year or so ago, Phil came into town, and he said, hey, I want to introduce you to a pastor buddy of mine, and he serves in Korea, (laughs) and I don't want to meet him. (laughs) God, don't take me international. I can't, I can't take it. George Whitfield, the famous evangelist, said, Oh, Lord, give me souls or take mine. There's something about prayer. It's not because you're a good person. It's not because I'm this great person that goes out and prays for all these people. You just can't help it because when you, you can't help it because when you get in the mode of prayer, you get in the mindset of Jesus. And when you get in the mindset of Jesus, you automatically look at other people. And we start looking at other people, and you do that in an honest way. You begin to see need, and you begin to develop passion. And the Holy Spirit begins to raise up within your soul a strong desire to care for those. And so I think Jesus was simply being himself. And he's getting ready to go and pray. He says, by the way, you guys, (laughs) you need it just as much as I do. I believe if you will develop a prayer life, you will see that it will be wedded to care for other people. My third observation is this. In this prayer of Jesus, we see the two most ingredients, uh, two most important ingredients that need to go into every prayer life. Verse 41, it says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, probably about 30 yards, 20 yards, something like that. And he knelt down and he prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I believe there are two ingredients in this prayer that have to to formulate and, and serve every one of our prayer lives. The first word, I'm just going to make it as simple as possible, is the word honesty. Jesus is very honest with his father about how he's feeling at this particular moment. Jesus says, if you are willing, remove this cup. Jesus looks at the cross He sees it for what it really means. And friends, Jesus wasn't scared about the physical suffering he was going to go through, although that was going to be awful. It was going to be horrendous. It was going to be brutal. But that's not what bothered Jesus so much as it was. He looked at the cross and knew that that was the place where the sacrifice was going to be made. And the sacrifice meant that the wrath of God, that the punishment for sin was going to be poured out on him that God was going to treat him as your sins deserve and as my sins deserve. Jesus knew when he went to the cross, he was going to hell. And it scared his humanity literally to death. And he said, Father, I got to be honest with you. If there's a plan B, now would be a great time to bring it up. Because I look at the cross and it's dreadful. And I'm so thankful for that prayer being recorded in the gospel because it says to me that God understands my fear. God wants me to come to him in an honest way. God doesn't want me to say, oh, everything's fine and everything's okay when it isn't. God is big enough to handle my anxiety. He's big enough to handle the emotional struggle. He's big enough for me to say, God, I don't really believe right now. I need you to help me believe. It's that dark around me. Jesus exemplified this honesty, and I'm so thankful he did. The second part of this, though, 
is that honesty must always be coupled with trust. He said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is submitting himself. And that's part of what prayer is. Prayer is saying, you know what, God, I don't have the big picture. I don't see everything that you're doing. I don't know the beginning from the end and everything that happens in between. God, I'm not timeless like you. God, I'm mortal. I'm finite. I can only see the immediacy of what's in front of me. And so my prayer needs to begin with a trust in you because I could pray the wrong way. I could ask for the wrong things. From my perspective, it looks like it ought to be this, but Father, I might have that wrong. And so if I do, I want to submit my will to yours. I want to trust you. I was challenged this week as I looked at this passage, and I want to challenge all of us this morning to look out and watch out for an imbalance of this in our lives. What do I mean by that? Well, I thought about what would my prayer life look like if it was solely comprised of honesty, if it was just me telling God how I felt and what emotions I was, I was wrestling with at that particular moment. And, and, and the conclusion I've come to is that honesty without trust leads to stunted spiritual growth, which could end up in resentment. If I never get around to saying to God, Father, please do something. <laughs> if I never get around to saying, God, I really do trust you in this set of circumstances, even though I can't figure it out for the life of me, but your will be done. If I never get that far, it seems to me that I'm not living by faith. I'm living by my circumstances. I'm living by my my emotions of the moment, and those can be really bad emotions. About this time of year, I tend to get pretty discouraged. I don't know if it's the end of the winter. Maybe that happens to you. You know, I'm so glad that it's March the 1st today and that we're moving towards spring, but every towards spring, but every year and you all blessed us so greatly last week, but it was a two-edged sword because you gave my wife ammunition. Because when you all celebrated with us our 10 years, the first thing she said to me when we walked out of the building was not, honey, I'm so proud of you. Congratulations. Wasn't that wonderful? It was. Got nothing to complain about this year, do you? <laughs> Guess we'll be skipping that late winter funk, won't we? <laughs> Cindy acts as the Holy Spirit quite often in my life, and, and for a good reason, as you can tell. But what she was saying is, Tom, you got to apply. You got to apply trust to prayer. It can't just be, can't just be honesty. And then I thought the flip side of that: what about trust without honesty? I, mean, I guess I'm going to err. I want to err on the side of trust. But I think trust without honesty may lead me to an obligation, uh, to a sense of duty. Here's what I have to do. I have to, I have to go trust God, and I lose the relational intimacy. So I've been trying to figure out what is this, what is this like? You know, a balanced prayer life is like, what is this like? And the, the best example I could come up with, it's like a child standing on the edge of a pool with their parent in the water. Now, if you're a parent, you've had this experience. If you've been a kid, you've had this experience where, where mom or dad gets a few feet from the, from the edge of the pool and you're maybe two or three years old and they hold out their arms and what do they say? One word, jump. And, and what does the kid say? No way in the world. It looks like the Grand Canyon between your hands and the edge of this pool. And then the negotiation starts, right? And negotiation can last, you know, five seconds if you've got a daredevil of a kid, or it can last uh, five weeks if you've got a really timid one. Somewhere in that time frame, eventually the hope is that this child will jump. Why? Because if the child exercises no trust, they won't learn that you're safe as a parent. They won't have the joy of falling into your arms and knowing literally for the rest of their lives that that will be true. 
But a child that doesn't exercise honesty will be unable to tell you how they're really feeling and may think that your expectation of them is a bit too high. And they'll lose that sense of relationship between father and child or mother and child. And I think if we don't hold honesty and we don't hold trust in the same balance, we'll miss the compassion of Jesus, but we'll also miss his obedience. I don't know a mature disciple of Jesus that doesn't get this, that doesn't understand that you have to hold both of these with equal weight. I think about my friend Chuck Nieder, who's one of the greatest Christian men I know, and I I love when he comes and preaches once a year. I I could tell you story after story after story about all the great things that his ministry has accomplished, and literally hundreds of thousands of middle school and high school students over the last 25, 27 years. I could also stand here and tell you story after story after story of the struggles and the pain that he's gone through as a person in his family and in his ministry, not unlike any of us. And I've watched him over the years grow to understand this honesty. Chuck will tell you exactly how he's feeling. <laughs> I'll, I'll call him on the phone. How are you doing today, bud? He says, I, is Jesus real? Help me. I'm really struggling. But I also know he gets, he gets to trust. <laughs> and he lives in that place, as I believe we all want to do. Two most important ingredients in this prayer, honesty and trust, is my third observation. My fourth is this. God's perfect plan often includes both pain and peace. Look at verses 43 and 44. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Think about that, Jesus needing strengthening. You could preach a whole sermon just on that. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You need to understand that Jesus got an answer to this prayer. The answer was, no, son, there is no other way. Their sins are that awful. Hell is the price. My wrath is the price that must be paid if they're going to have salvation. And friends, we know that's a good plan, don't we? Those of us that stand in the shadow of the cross today, those of us who are disciples of Jesus in this generation, wouldn't we all stand up and say, that's a phenomenal plan, that's a great plan, but it cost Jesus his life. God's plan is always good. He always does what is perfect. But his chief concern was not the ease of his son, the comfort of his son, nor the safety of his son. It was something much deeper. And it came at a great price. And so we see the agony of Jesus. There appeared to him an angel strengthened him, and being in great agony, he prayed being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. That word agony is only used five times in the entire scripture. And and it's only used here in its strongest sense. The word here means that he was in unbelievable emotional pain, that what he was dealing with was anguish, was utter anguish. There's actually a milder form of this word used in Revelation chapter 12, in the first couple verses, when it describes a woman who's giving birth, and she's in anguish, but it's not as strong as this word here. So ladies... (laughs) You understand this better, those of you that have children understand this better than we ever will. The height of pain in delivering a child is less than what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. The wrestling match that went on in his heart and in his soul, here's where the battle was fought. Once Jesus leaves Gethsemane, as we're going to see in just a minute, he has a firm resolve. 
He has made his mind up and he is moving forward. But in this particular moment, he is in such pain and such emotional struggle that he needs an angel from heaven to come and to care for him. But I want you also to see the peace that's here. And it's not obvious by any stretch of the imagination. He was earnestly praying and sweat, uh, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You say, how on earth does that demonstrate peace? Well, I've discovered something this week that I never knew about this passage before, and I might be the first person in the history of the church to discover it, and if I am, I want it named after me, okay? I'm probably not the first, but I have to tell you, I've never read this anywhere else. So if you've read it somewhere else, I don't want to talk to you this morning after the service. But this is a fascinating, this is a fascinating uh, uh, story to me. The medical term for what happened to Jesus in sweating great drops of blood is hematohydrosis. I may not be pronouncing that right. You doctors can straighten me out. But hematohydrosis is the name of the medical condition that Jesus was, was going through when he was sweating drops of blood. Listen to this. This is a doctor who wrote this. This is not me writing this. This is a doctor who, who studied this and says this. Around the sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels in a net-like form. Under the pressure of great stress, the vessels constrict. Then as the anxiety passes, the blood, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture. The blood goes into the sweat glands, and the sweat glands are producing a lot of sweat. It pushes the blood to the surface, coming out as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. Now, if you were listening carefully, something should have just jumped out at you and screamed and waved at you at the top of its arms. When does this, the, these sweats of blood, when are they produced? As the anxiety passes. Jesus made a decision and he came to peace. Even as the blood droplets were falling from his body, they demonstrated that he knew his course, that he had the answer to his prayer and that he was at peace. Friends, I cannot tell you that every answer to prayer that God is going to give you is going to be the answer that you want. It probably won't be. I cannot tell you that every time you pray, you're going to feel great about yourself and about your relationship with God. There are going to be times in your life where there is pain, where there is stress, where there is agony, but there is also in an honest prayer life and in a trusting prayer life, there is a resolve and there is a peace. Even though the circumstances before you may look awful, may look painful, it is that peace that passes understanding that comes when we understand that God's plan is a perfect plan, even if it means my experiencing pain. My last observation is this. Resolve in prayer is an example to others. Verses 45 and 46. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Just the very thing he told them to be careful of, he comes back and he finds them all asleep. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus has been wrestling in prayer for literally for hours. If you look at the other gospels and their, their conversation about this, Jesus has been praying for quite some time. He's been in emotional agony, but he, but he ultimately comes in this firm resolve. He's going to the cross, and he comes and he finds the disciples, and the Greek literally says here, worn out with grief. They were just so sad and so upset, and they were just emotionally drained, and they fell asleep. And Jesus comes out of his experience of prayer as a willing sacrifice, ready to face the cross, but still teaching his disciples, still offering them the hope that is found in him. 
I find it, again, fascinating that Jesus' concern and Jesus' passion was for the men immediately around him to stand up under their struggle. He had had his time in prayer, and now his resolve in prayer was setting an example for those to follow. And if you go on and you read the epistles, and you read Peter, and you read uh, John in the later uh, passages of the New Testament, and you look at their passion for prayer, and you look at, at how they call the church to prayer, you can just picture in their minds as they write these letters, this experience, where Jesus reminds them, you pray so that you won't enter temptation. Jesus prayed the most important prayer ever uttered, the face of the earth. It led to the most important act in human history because it led to the cross and it led to your salvation and it led to mine. I don't know what Jesus has in store for this generation. I don't know all the things to which he's called us. I know he's called us to plant churches. I know he's called us to have an impact in the Kirkwood community, but none of that will happen unless we are firmly resolved and rooted and grounded in prayer. With that in mind, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, this morning, we have had the opportunity to enter into Gethsemane for just a few moments with you. And I, I Lord, I, I can't begin to do justice to a passage like this. This is, this is holy ground. <laughs> this is one of the most intimate scenes we have of your life. In your day and age, people, when you walked the earth, people stood up and they lifted their head up to heaven when they prayed and you just fell flat on your face. And you wrestled and you sweated and you, and you struggled with the reality of the cross for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you didn't enter into your last 24 hours without prayer, but that you saw it as a foundation for your life. You saw it as that which gave you strength. Your relationship with your father was what led you to the end. It led you to a successful completion of your ministry on earth. So Lord Jesus, we praise you for your example. We praise you for your passion. And we pray this morning that your word would help mold and shape us more and more day by day into a people of prayer. We ask it in your name. Amen.